0: You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to au. Hey, good morning, everyone. If you want to open your Bibles to John chapter seven. When all else fails, read the instructions. It's a mantra. A lot of us men choose not to live by. It seems to be uh, almost built into us that uh, we avoid reading instructions at all costs. We're pretty good with our hands most of the time, so why should we need to consult an instruction manual to figure it out? After all, a real man doesn't need an instruction manual. But then John and I had to concede defeat on just this point recently and had to consult the manual We were setting up our new camper trailer for the first time and the seller had talked us through the process of putting it up and it seemed pretty straightforward and it only took us about 15 minutes to get that bit up. But he didn't show us how to set up the annex on the side of it. And uh, we struggled and wrestled with this huge heavy piece of canvas for about 15 minutes, trying to work out which poles went where and how to tie it all together but none of it seemed to make any sense. Eventually, we decided enough was enough, conceded defeat, and John looked up the instructions on the internet. Now, that did help a little bit. Ridgepole (laughs) C2 is supposed to span across to the upright B4, and from B4, the crossbars A1 and A2 came off on each side, to the left and the right. But while the instructions made sense, they still weren't perfect. The A's and B's and C's and D poles didn't seem to be labelled correctly. So uh, we struggled on for about another 40 minutes until we finally got it all worked out and got it set up. And at that point, I decided it's time to label each pole and strut and brace with a descriptive name and a colour to suit the different areas of the camper trailer. Next time, in theory, we can do it in 15 or 20 minutes. Of course, the bad labelling didn't help our cause, but we could have saved ourselves a lot of time and a lot of hassle if we consulted the instruction manual first instead of last. Even though the instructions weren't perfect, there's nothing like actually doing it yourself to understand. You can read the instruction manual a thousand times and you can memorise it and you can quote it by heart, but there's nothing quite like doing it to understand the proof of the pudding is in the eating, so the old proverb goes. You don't know if a pudding's any good until you make it and bake it and taste it. You can memorise the recipe by heart, but until you've done that, until you've cooked it and tasted it, you don't know if the recipe's telling the truth about how tasty this pudding's going to be. So the proof of the instructions is in the erecting. In our case, <clears throat> it showed us whether the instructions were accurate. And whether the polls were labelled correctly too. Or as Jesus puts it here in John chapter 7 and verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know if my teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So let's read that passage to get the context first, shall we? The occasion, as you know, is the Feast of Tabernacles. It's one of the most popular and joyous of all the regular feasts that the Jews celebrated. I'll have more to say about the Feast of Tabernacles in the future message for the background to the feast is important to understanding some of Jesus' most significant statements that are coming up in the next couple of chapters. But uh, we start in, uh, let's say, verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me that on the Sabbath I made a whole person, a whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now, Jesus, as is his habit, accuses the leaders of not obeying and and not knowing the law of God. He does that sort of thing a lot, it seems, and it always gets him in trouble. Yeah, how dare this man accuse these scholars of not knowing God's word or God's will? How dare he accuse the religious leaders of not doing God's will? They lived their whole lives determined to obey God's law and they did it in precise and exacting detail, in their eyes at least. In fact, they were so determined to get it right that they went further than the law given by Moses and they added multiplied hundreds of additional directives to ensure that they would never break the law. By building a fence of detailed commands around the ones given through Moses, They were pretty confident that they would never stray beyond those bounds. So the scribes and the Pharisees were proud of their obedience to the law. Now, remember, Jesus pointed out one of the Pharisees praying at the temple in uh, Luke chapter 18, it is. And he said, God, uh, the Pharisee says in his prayer, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I'll give tithes of all I get. And that was their attitude. They were obedient to the law. They were righteous. Now, for example, in, the, in an effort to ensure obedience to the command to tithe, they gave not only 10% of their income, but 10% of every herb and spice and plant that they grew in their garden to make sure they didn't walk too far on the Sabbath. They, they determined a limit of roughly a 1,000 metres from your home that you could walk without breaking the Sabbath law. To walk further than that Sabbath day's journey would constitute work. The scribes and the Pharisees had compiled a list of 39 categories of work that were prohibited on the Sabbath. Some of these make some sort of sense to us, such as ploughing a paddock or shearing sheep. That surely constitutes work. But then also forbidden were such simple daily activities as kneading dough or baking bread, tying and untying knots, even something as petty as writing or erasing two or more letters. It's work that constitutes breaking the Sabbath. Starting a fire was forbidden, as is putting out a fire. That meant if you wanted uh, wanted the light during Friday night darkness, you had to light the candle before the sun went down on Friday, or you didn't if you didn't, you spent the night in darkness. Modern ultra-orthodox Jews do a similar thing today. They interpret that law to mean that uh, they must take the light out of their refrigerator on Friday before the sun goes down, lest they cause the fridge to work on the Sabbath when they open the door. Number thirty-nine on their list was carrying something from a public place to a private place or vice versa. This is what got Jesus in trouble back in the John chapter five, when he told the lame man at the pool of Bethesda to pick up his mat and go home. And the Jews said to that man, it's the Sabbath is not lawful for you to carry your mat. Now in, the chronology of these events, that happened six months ago, but the Jews are still stewing over it here in John chapter 7 in our passage today. It's the event, the event that Jesus is referring to in verse 21 when he says, I did one work and you marvel at it. Now, that wasn't the only so-called law that Jesus broke on that day when he healed the man. They also had laws forbidding receiving medical attention on the Sabbath. And that's clearly what Jesus did when he healed the man. He provided medical attention. It's also what he did when he made mud to put on the eyes of the man in John chapter 9 who was blind. He made a medical ointment to put on the man's eyes. And when he healed the crippled woman in Luke 13 who had been bent over double for 18 years, he broke the law that said you may not straighten a deformed child's body Or set a broken limb on the Sabbath. Imagine having a broken leg on the Sabbath and having to wait till tomorrow to set it. (laughs) What a mess they made of the pure and simple and life-giving laws of God. What a mess we make of God's law when we add to it, when we subtract to it, or when we distort it. Laws are good. Laws are designed to help keep order in society. Laws are designed to help us understand what is right behaviour and what is wrong behaviour. But man has an insatiable appetite for corrupting laws. We humans love to add more and more laws to try and precisely define how this law applies. It's what the Pharisees did. I'm not sure what Australia's tax law is like, but apparently Britain's tax law is 17. 1,000 pages long. Good luck trying to understand tax law in Britain. And that's just the tax law. Imagine how many more pages of law about crime and property and property ownership and road rules and business and public safety and food hygiene there must be. But no sooner have we multiplied all these laws than we embark on the quest to find loopholes around them. For example, the law about not working on the Sabbath that was added to define a Sabbath day's journey, uh, the the Pharisees had worked out a loophole to get around that and to double the distance. Apparently by having the foresight to declare some food at the 1,000 metre mark from your home on the day before, you could walk to that point, declare that your temporary home and walk another 1,000 metres beyond. Technically, where you left the food, is your home for the day. The Jews had no qualms about finding ways to get around the law when it suited them. They accused Jesus of breaking the law, though, when he healed the man on the Sabbath. But Jesus told them, if you one of your sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you don't hesitate to lift it out. Sabbath or no Sabbath, you're lifting that sheep out of the pit. Of how much more value, Jesus says, is a man than a sheep? It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, he tells them in Matthew chapter 12. But they still didn't get the message. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how they could destroy him. They couldn't tolerate Jesus' blatant disregard for the Sabbath. We know your teaching is not from God, they would say, because you work on the Sabbath. But Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. He answers them in verse 21, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. But if if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? For all their insistence on not working on the Sabbath, on not giving or receiving medical attention on the Sabbath, they themselves performed medical procedures every time they circumcised an eight-day-old baby boy. The pattern was set way back in Genesis 17. A baby boy was to be circumcised on the eighth day of its life. didn't matter if that day fell on the Sabbath. The command to circumcise overrode the command to not work. So if they were permitted to cut off a part of the body on the Sabbath, why should they object to to Jesus repairing the whole body on the Sabbath? It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, Jesus said. But why couldn't they see what Jesus was doing? Why were they so opposed to him? Why did they not understand what he was up to? Why did they consider him the sinner, and themselves righteous? We could ask the same questions today. Why does society, does society reject the teachings of the Bible? Why does society consider Christians to be the sinners and themselves to be righteous? Now, there's at least two reasons why the Jews rejected Jesus and his teaching. The first is that they knew He hadn't studied under one of their authorised and accepted and approved teachers. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied, they ask? No one would dare to utter any words of instruction about God's law without having spent years at the feet of another qualified teacher. In their minds, that would be like me trying to teach you Chinese when you know I've never studied Chinese. One of the Apostle Paul's qualifications was that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a teacher held in honour by all the people. Only that sort of education qualifies you to teach others. And even then, no teacher worth his salt would dare to claim that his teaching on his own authority he will always preface his remarks with, as Rabbi Moshe says, or as Rabbi Shimon taught, but not Jesus. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable To judgment, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, even everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You have heard it said, the rabbis would say, but I say to you, Jesus says, Over and over again, Jesus makes these pronouncements. Over and over again, Jesus claims an authority for himself, even over their own laws. But Jesus had no formal training that they were aware of. And yet he spoke as one with authority. Later on in John chapter 7, the temple guards go to arrest him and they return empty-handed and saying, no one ever spoke like this man. The people... Uh, in Mark, record that they were astonished at his teaching Unlike because unlike the scribes, he was teaching them as one having authority. Jesus did teach as one who had authority. And we know why, of course, because he does have authority. But the other reason they rejected him, and the other reason they rejected his teaching goes much deeper than that. In fact, it goes to the very depths of the soul. It goes right down into human nature, which means it's a problem that we suffer from too. Verse 17, if if it is anyone's will to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. How can you test whether Jesus is speaking the truth? How can you determine where his authority comes from. Ultimately, only by doing the will of God. The proof of the teaching is in the doing. And for all their protests that they were obedient to God, they weren't really. They'd substituted the law of God with the traditions of men. Mark's gospel records an telling insight into the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes in chapter 7 of Mark, says the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees, in fact, all the Jews will not eat unless they wash their hands ritually, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep like the washing of cups, jugs, coffee utensils, and dining couches. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating bread with ritually unclean hands? And he answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching his doctrines, the commands of men. Disregarding the command of God, you keep the traditions of men. And he also said to them, you completely invalidate God's command in order to maintain your tradition. They'd put their man-made traditions on an equal or a higher standing than God's commands. And so their worship was meaningless. In fact, it was even offensive to God. And if their worship was meaningless, even more so was their claimed obedience to God. They might have all the external appearance of godliness, but they had none of the internal willingness to submit to God. The first charge against them and the worst charge against them is that they refused to believe in Jesus. They refused to come to him for salvation. Remember, we read back in John 6, verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? The crowds asked. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's a serious charge. It's the most serious charge of all. And we're not immune to it today. The most important thing any one of us can ever do in this life is to come to Jesus Christ. To believe in him. Unless and until we do that, everything else is meaningless. Everything else is offensive to God. Then we must determine that God's word as found in the Bible is our rule for life and conduct. The only rule we need. But we tend to break this in so many ways. For some of us, that means that the traditions and the rituals of our church or our denomination are sacred. It doesn't matter if they contradict scripture. The church has been teaching this for centuries, so it must be right. I'm sure, you can think of some churches that that would apply to. They can apply in even silly and subtle ways in a local church. Some people get so entrenched in their ways and the way. We've always done it, that they resist any change, even if that change can be shown to be biblical. We've never done it that way before, so why start now? More serious is when Christians reject biblical teaching because they don't like the implications of it. Maybe doctrines such as the sovereignty of God or sin or hell or the call to obedience or holy living. Assuming the teaching is accurate, Sometimes it's because they misunderstand what's being taught. That's the same problem Jesus faced frequently. But too often, they reject it because it upsets the apple cart. It makes them uncomfortable or it challenges their long-held beliefs. I could never believe in a God like that. You've probably heard someone protest that yourself. They never stop to ask themselves the question, but what if God is like that? And they never take the time to study for themselves to find out if God is like that. Are you willing to submit to the teaching of Scripture even when it upsets you, when it challenges you, when it stretches you, even if it confuses you? Sometimes some things take time to work through. Sometimes wrong teaching and wrong beliefs need to be undone, and that can be a process that takes a little while. But are you willing to go through that process? It's a question we all need to ask ourselves. To study, to show yourselves approved, rightly handling the word of truth, Paul wrote. To examine the scriptures daily if necessary, to see if these things are true, like the Bereans did. Or are you so set in your ways, so convinced that you're already right, that you don't need to? Remember the Pharisees. Remember the scribes. Maybe you add to or subtract from the scriptures to suit your circumstances. Or maybe you look for loopholes so you can continue doing this thing that you know is wrong, all the while protesting that you're actually in the right. Maybe you've succumbed to the pressure of society to reinterpret the word of God, water it down, and reject the parts that our modern woke society doesn't like? Are you more concerned to be found on the right side of history than to believe and obey God's word? Let me warn you. You might think you're on the right side of history, but history hasn't finished yet. History is not yet complete. The final day, judgment day, will reveal who is really on the right side of history. I hope and I pray that you'll be found to be unashamed in the presence of Christ Jesus on that day. It's really no wonder that so many people don't understand Jesus and they don't value his word and they refuse to bend the knee to submit to it because it takes a change of heart to receive it. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. That's basically what Jesus told Nicodemus back in chapter 3 of John. After stressing the need to be born again, he puts it like this. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, anyone can understand simple commands like do not commit adultery or do not kill. You don't need any special spiritual experience to understand that. But to understand the deeper implications of do not commit adultery or do not kill, you need a changed heart. You need to be born again. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit gets to work in you to make you realise that do not kill also means do not get angry with your brother without cause. And that do not commit adultery means more than just the physical act. It means that if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees had been stewing for months about Jesus healing that man on the Sabbath. It's because they didn't understand the deeper, deeper implication that it's always right to do good on the Sabbath. And Jesus challenged them with that question when he asked them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? He pointed out for them the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. They had it the wrong way around. They thought observance of the Sabbath overruled every other requirement except, of course, circumcision. They couldn't see and they refused to see that God gave the Sabbath to man to benefit man, to give man rest. So instead they loaded people down with more burdens because to them the Sabbath was more important than the person. And in this way, they showed they didn't really understand the law of God. They showed in other ways as well. Has not Moses given you the law, Jesus asked them in our passage here, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? They protested, of course, that Jesus was demon possessed. He was paranoid. Who's seeking to kill you, they asked. But Jesus knew their hearts. The authorities had been plotting for months how they could kill him. In six months' time, they'll get their wish. But all the while, while they're plotting to and claiming to faithfully keep God's law, they're also plotting to kill him. They're also plotting to be a false witness against him, another one of the clear commands of God. They were guilty of willfully breaking both those laws. They weren't keeping the law. They were protecting their position, their status, their authority, their traditions. They weren't about to lose all of their prestige and all of their comforts thanks to some upstart troublemaker from Nazareth. Because they weren't really interested in keeping the law, they could never understand the source of Jesus' authority. That's why they couldn't accept that his teaching came directly from God and not out of his own imagination. The same applies today. You may claim to be a good person, that you try not to break God's law. Whether God's law or society's law, you're a good person. The question is, will you submit to God's will? Will you submit to his will as revealed in the Bible? Or will society set the standards for your behaviour? Will the world determine for you what is acceptable and what is not? If you're more concerned to be on the right side of history than to obey God's word, I suggest you've already thrown your lot in with the scribes and the Pharisees. For you've already implicitly declared that God's law is not good enough for you. You want more laws that go beyond God's word. And you want less laws from God's word. And you want to distort the laws that are in God's word. And so you'll never really know if Jesus' teaching is from God. And that's because you're not serious about doing God's will. Don't judge the Bible by a superficial reading. Many, many people do that. Don't judge Christians who endeavour to hold fast to Scripture. For then you're doing exactly what Jesus tells them not to do in our passage today. You're judging by appearances but not with right judgment. So how do you get beyond this superficial judgment to make a right judgment of Jesus and his words? Firstly, you must set your heart to do his will above all things, even if that means you'll be ostracized, reviled, persecuted, jailed, or maybe even killed for your stance. They did it to Jesus for following his father's will. Do you imagine that you're above him? Do you think that will make you safe from their hatred and enmity if you bow to their wishes? So the first thing you must do, of course, as I've said, is believe in him whom God has sent. When you do that, you'll actually be trusting in God the Father. Jesus himself said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. He goes on to say later on in John chapter 12, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Rarely do the expectations of the world coincide with the requirements of God. It's a pretty good chance that if society is calling for Christians to believe certain things, to behave in certain ways, to accept certain things, then it's wrong in God's sight. You need to know for yourself. So put your trust in Jesus Christ first. Until you do that, none of the rest will matter. And worse, it will be used against you on Judgment Day. Then set your heart to know him, to follow him, to obey him all the days of your life. Read your Bible. Find out what he says. Find out what he expects. And then his Holy Spirit will shape you and mould you into his image more and more every day of your life. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information go to cityedgechurch.com.au dot AU